0: So, good evening. Feels to me like we've been here much longer than 24 hours. <laughs> I don't know about all of you, but here we are at the end of our first full day of practice together. And so, it's a chance to, uh, this time of day, to share some reflections on Dharma with you all. And this evening I'd like to start with a, a reading, which may speak to some of your experience of today. We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and we're trying to hurry it up or we recall the past as if to stay it's too rapid flight. We're so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us and do not think of the only one that does. We're so vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we're sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we're going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present, and if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and present are our means, and the future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be so. So you may have caught at least moments like this arising in your day-to-day. I certainly have, myself. And uh, this really could have been said by anyone at any time, but it was this particular um, reflection on our human predicament comes from Blaise Pascal, who was a 17th century French philosopher. But this is precisely the problem that uh, the Buddha pointed out and that... um, Many thinkers before him and after him, and spiritual teachers have uh, pointed out this our, our perennial inability to live uh, and find satisfaction in the present moment. And it's kind of paradoxical, really, for us that it's so difficult to stay present. You might have found that happening today. And at the same time, the present moment is impossible to get away from. So all the things that bug us are also (laughs) here in the present moment, and we can neither get away from it when we want to get away from it, nor stay in it when we want to stay in it. And actually, this is... uh, You know, the body comes into both these these, uh, sides of the paradox, if you like, that the body is our great friend, ally, and support... For this endeavour of staying present but it also uh, you know is what we can't get away from either yeah. the, the, the difficulties that we experience in the present moment are experienced through this body and a lot of them have to do just with this predicament of being born a human being in a human body so this sort of sounds like a pessimistic observation that the present moment usually hurts yeah. And that's not a, a, to deny that the present, mo- in the present moment, there can be profoundly pleasant experiences. But any pleasant experience that we that we uh, have in the present moment, often, very often, we get then caught up in the the project of well, how can I sustain this or get more of it? How can I make sure that it doesn't go away? Or we start uh, comparing future moments, like you know, you have a, a good what feels like a good meditation usually if a a meditation is pleasant we decide it's a good one and that's a whole other question to investigate but then we suffer later when our subsequent meditation doesn't do what the one before did so these pleasant experiences pass and they're over too soon but this isn't, this isn't uh, just a useless, pessimistic observation. This is actually exactly what the Buddha was pointing to in his teaching on the noble truth of suffering, the first, what's called the first noble truth, when he said there is this thing called dukkha, which we translate as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, or sometimes these days people translate it as stress. And But really, this, it spans the whole spectrum from just a mild sense of unsatisfactoriness to a really um, deep sense of anguish and uh, the experience that we have in the most uh, difficult situations of life. And this word dukkha um, comes from uh, the word for the axle of a wheel. And uh, du is... Uh, bad or difficult it's like the kind of a negative prefix so the opposite of dukkha is sukkha that which is ease or contentment but dukkha is difficulty or unsatisfactoriness and it's the the wheel that doesn't fit properly on the axle so it rubs and chafes and there's a sense of friction there and I think the sense of friction is actually a very good way of understanding Dukkha. It's the friction of the pleasant moment. And our present moment is an experience of friction. This present moment is the moment that's arising in front of the sense doors. And... uh, if we look at the the way that this is understood in the traditional Buddhist teachings, which I think is really helpful, the Buddha actually said that our entire experience is made up of just the arisings at the six sense doors. So you can argue these days about how many senses a human being actually has. And, you know, there's some schools of thought that say we have 20 or 30 or whatever because we've subdivided them into more, more subtle things. But broadly speaking, we, we have seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And in, in Dhamma, in the Buddhist tradition, which I think is really interesting and important, is that the mind itself is seen as at the sense door. So when a mental image or a thought lands on the mind, it's a similar experience to when uh, a sound lands on the ear. And our whole world is made up of these moments of contact mediated through the senses. And when there's contact, there's some kind of friction. And what this friction does is it generates uh, the next thing in the, in the, in the chain that happens is this sense of, oh, that's pleasant or well, that's not pleasant. So it said that every experience that we experience through the senses comes in one of three flavors present, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. But the things that tend to hook us are the pleasant and the unpleasant because we're wired, and it's natural, this is part of our evolution, to like what's pleasant, to dislike what's unpleasant and then to start to react to that to want more of the pleasant to want to get rid of the unpleasant and it's said that when it's kind of something that's of indeterminate nature neither pleasant nor unpleasant our tendency is to ignore it and to check out, so check out from it so we don't actually learn anything from it we don't actually do anything that starts to address this underlying tendency to get swatted around by the experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness So what arises usually when we we have something pleasant or unpleasant is what's called tanha or craving. This is the second noble truth of the Buddha. That Our response to this is to uh, thirst, hunger or thirst. Tanha literally means thirst for um, the pleasant and to thirst to get rid of the unpleasant. And this kicks us off into a whole cycle of unsatisfactoriness. So for example in my group this afternoon we were talking a lot about the difficulties that people have here sleeping at night especially on the first night of the retreat but generally speaking acknowledging that you know it's not the easiest situation for sleeping when you're in a, in a new place, in a different bed, and many, most of you even are sharing rooms, and then the building is not soundproof. So even when we're not sharing a room, you know, we hear people moving around near us, we hear um, loose flushing, and we hear snoring coming from nearer or farther away. So we might be lying in bed, you know, tired, kind of wanting to be fresh for tomorrow so we can really make the most of our precious time on retreat. And suddenly there's a little <sniffs> from somewhere nearby. So this is a sound that lands on the ear door. It's a sound and the, you have the external phenomenon, the sound arising and then you have the sense door of the ear. And then there's the moment of consciousness that, uh, that brings the two together and there's an experience of hearing and that has a feeling tone to it. So probably if we kind of have this latent dread of being kept awake by snoring, that snore will have a an unpleasant little feeling tone to it. And they, these, So these feeling tones are also conditioned by our habit patterns and circumstance and so on. And then we start uh, kind of building on that. The mind starts building on that. Oh, please stop. And then... Oh, if this doesn't stop, I'm not going to be able to get to sleep. And this always happens to me. And I know that if I don't sleep, you know, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to uh, be present in the way that I want to be present tomorrow and so on. And I really don't want to now sow the seeds of... Uh, anxiety in anyone who thinks they might snore at night because we all we all do from time to time and there's nothing you know this is there's nothing we can do about it. this is the kind of this is the the juice for our practice here if you like so you know where I was sleeping myself I didn't hear anyone snoring but I too did really struggled to sleep last night and I was lying awake in bed at about three in the morning and then I heard a sound of water running upstairs and I think, oh that's a Loo flushing, So sound, hearing, loo flushing. It's not really pleasant or unpleasant, but then there was a thought that arose in my mind. Hang on, it's three o'clock in the morning, why is the loo flushing? Because we have a rule that you don't do this between 10pm 10, 10 and 5am or whatever it is. But of course there are many reasons why one might flush a loo in the middle of the night, and it's not a strict rule. But once the mind has produced this thought, this shouldn't be happening this is the sort of thought that generates an unpleasant feeling when it lands in the mind, doesn't it? And then we go, oh, a... oh, and this is going to happen again and again. I'm not going to be able to get to sleep. Maybe I need to say something again to people in the morning. Mm-hmm. And We get into this whole cycle. And before we know it, we've kind of wound ourselves up into a condition which is really going to sap our energy and actually prevent us from getting to sleep at all. This is just a typical pattern of these sorts that. are being pointed out here of how just a simple arising at the sense doors, if we're not mindful to it, can lead into this whole spin of mental proliferation that kind of gets us sucked into a bigger and bigger cycle of unsatisfactoriness. And it's really worth, you know, we keep sort of referring to where noticing when you're lost in thought coming back, reconnecting with the present moment, because thoughts even when they are Concerned with the past or the future, the place of contact of the experience of the thought with the mind is in the present moment. So that's where the friction is occurring. That's where there's a possibility of uh, really meeting it and studying our approach to it in a different way. But we get kind of lost in the story. So we we, we're sort of trying to fix something out in the uh, out in the future where actually place where the experience is actually happening is here in the present moment so this present moment we keep emphasizing it because this is where we can study the dharma where we can study the teaching and where we can study understand it and understand it and where the work of our practice takes place so the, the, the epithet that the Buddha used for his own teaching is sanditiko, which means apparent here and now, or visible in the present moment. So it's not teaching some esoteric thing that's kind of way out there that we might understand after our deathbed or something like that, but it's actually pointing to our immediate experience. And this, these noble truths are... Uh, noble is perhaps not a good translation of them, what it may be better translated as ennobling. So we could say this is all pessimistic observation, but it's actually ennobling us because it enables us to actually take a, a radically different approach to life, which actually um, can uh, yield a, a tremendous uh, amount of freedom. So each experience of contact can be uh, met with awareness or without awareness. And the the awareness of it changes everything. So we've been emphasizing mindfulness of the body because the body is a place where we can stay centered enough to actually uh, witness this experience, this, this impingement from the outside, if you like, with more clarity. And it's the place from which we have to navigate uh, our experience. So the, the Buddha said that mindfulness of the body is uh, perhaps one of the most important, in some contexts, the, the most important uh, pathway to to our freedom and he he has this image, which I like of the six sense doors being like six animals who all belong in a different habitat, so like an eagle, a jackal, a monkey. Uh I can't remember what they all are. The things that we don't have roaming around here in Devon in 2017. I think there's a crocodile in there and so on. But they they all they all naturally live in a different place. But they're all they're all tied together with one rope, and they're constantly <coughs> pulling one another in different directions. And the whole thing is deeply unsatisfactory for everybody. And he says, if you have mindfulness of the body, it's as if you can take a great big Uh, solid post and drive it into the ground and then each of the animals is roped not to one another so they're all pulling that pulling each other around in a in this kind of circle but um, each one is roped to the post in the middle and so eventually it gets tired of pulling against the post and it just kind of sits down quietly and so we start to have a sense of um, choice or mastery not over the senses themselves, but over our our response to them. So the teachings talk a lot about sense restraint, um, but this doesn't mean cutting ourselves off from sensory experience or denying our lives as sensual beings. It means uh, becoming skilled at unhooking ourselves from the, the tug and the push and the pull of the senses. And so cultivating this sense of centeredness and balance, you can see how, like in a lot of the Qigong we've been doing, it's almost like you're you're training your body to be there like a post in the middle of experience and this sense of rooting rooting the feet into the ground. We feel that we have more stability, actually more poise, from which we can actually um, start to approach some of these impingements. There's a great Tibetan teacher from the last century, Dilgo Khyensi Rinpoche. He said that our everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. I think by centralizes means like collapses into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy that is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. So this is setting a very high bar for what's expected of a practitioner in response to life's experiences. But you might, you might have noticed today, even in your own experience, moments of the subsiding of reactivity and how much energy gets freed up when we can put down uh, or when reactivity sub- subsides or when we uh, let go of uh, a particular thing that we, we're wanting to make happen or to have happen differently from the way that it's happening. When we kind of make our peace with that, it's like our energy comes back. We kind of Uh, instead of being uh, our energy spread across uh, different imaginings if you like more of it is available to us here and now so I invited you earlier to notice the experience of waiting maybe you've noticed moments of catching yourself waiting and you're kind of stretched out energetically between here and now and that beloved moment in five minutes time when somebody might mercifully ring the bell at the end of the meditation when we notice that happening and we make that choice to just come back okay, just be with this breath that more energy becomes available so there's tremendous value in learning to stay present and being aware of these Friction experiences as they're arising, to be able to stay present even uh, alongside in the face of an unpleasant experience. Probably many of you are familiar with them, I've heard of uh, Viktor Frankl. The concentration camp survivor who wrote uh, *Man's Search for Meaning* and uh, really studied how it how it was that some people who were in the concentration camps managed to uh, survive, and how other people, um, you know, how other people didn't really, and what was what was the difference between uh, the ones who kind of made it through. And he said that uh, the most important thing is our, our sense of um, having a choice about how we respond to the circumstances we find ourselves in. And even though that choice is, is not actually in our power to do anything, to change anything, but our choice is around our attitude and the meaning we make of any given moment or given situation. So he said that between a stimulus and a response there's a space and in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom and I've just been I am reading at the moment um, a very delightful book of conversations between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu you may have seen it around in the bookshops called The Book of Joy and it's edited by uh, someone called Doug Abrams, and he reflects in that when he's listening to them all and talking about, you know, how they how they've uh, managed to maintain a sense of optimism and an ability to see the positive things in the most awful of circumstances. And he reflects again about this this famous quote from Viktor Frankl, and so Doug Abrams says that the secret of freedom may simply be in extending. That space between the stimulus and response, and meditation seems to elongate this pause and help, our, help expand our ability to choose our response. And I wonder if you, you notice that in your own practice. So when we when we are able to pause, we have the possibility of freeing ourselves from our restricted, habitual ways of reacting to unpleasant stimuli. So, for example, you know, there uh, uh, something that might land on the sense door of your mind. Is the sense of there's a schedule and a program to be kept to here, so some of you it's actually it's a lot more um defined than you might have expected in terms of where you're supposed to be, how you're spending how you're spending your time, okay, now we're going to stand up now we're going to sit down you know, and just noticing what our personal uh, habitual way of reacting to that is, so there's this sense of okay. There's something here that's being imposed that's restrictive. Maybe there's a little frisson of unpleasant that we have associated with that. At least anxiety-provoking unpleasant, if not uh, resistant unpleasant. And then we were talking again in the group about how some of us have... Some of us, our response to that is anxiety that we're not going to do it right. And so we become over-vigilant about, you know, I need to make sure I'm everywhere on time and uh, do this properly and I kind of bash myself into shape so that I fit into the mould that's what, the one extreme that some of us are programmed to and then others of us it just kicks off this big regression and you think I'm not going to do any of this You know, I'm a grown up, I'm not going to be told what to do with my time and we react we in a different way and we, we start um, resisting what's on offer so you can notice this, this habit pattern of resistance Against being told what to do, or against being just asked to do something that we don't feel like in the moment, and then maybe moments of just surrendering to that. Okay, well, this is what this is what's happening now. I'm just going to let go of the resistance, and then how does how does that feel? Another pattern that we might have when things aren't going our way is to put in more effort. You know, this this feels challenging. This feels difficult. If I just try harder, I'll get it under control. You know, I'll nail it. And so we find ourselves getting wound up into an ever, ever uh, tighter um, spin of over-efforting. Or self-blame. You know, blaming ourselves. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm no good at this. I'm never any good at anything. I've got no self-discipline. I just, you know, everyone else looks like they're doing it brilliantly. And I've, I'm just this sort of mess here. And all the different versions of self-blame that we can impose on ourselves or we distract ourselves you know we go looking for that person to chat to we know that we've been asked not to speak and that uh, speaking is going to be you know, interfering with other other people's container of silence but actually we really have this overriding desire to go and speak to our friend or whatever so we do that or i don't know how, how it's been for you with phones today. So it was interesting that the the basket this morning came into the room and left the room empty. And that may well be that you decided, actually, I really don't need that, my phone's off and it's under my bed in my suitcase, or actually I know full well I don't get any reception here. It seems that some phone, phone companies have reception at Gaia House and some don't, you know. But just, um, you know, just noticing if your phone has been within arm's reach today and you have found yourself tempted to distract yourself, or just there's a habit there of when, when we don't quite know. And I find myself doing this all the time with my phone. It's really, it's really a problem when the, the mind is in that little space of I'm just not quite sure what to do right now. It's this little sort of edginess of oh, I'll just reach for my phone and check my phone, or check the weather, or whatever. Yeah. So distracting is, a, is another way we re- react to unease in the present moment, or we reach for something pleasant. So another way that you know we see this sense door experience and reactivity arise very quickly <coughs> is when you see. I have to confess that I have some chocolate up there in the teacher's flat. And I can have absolutely no desire for chocolate present in my mind, but then suddenly the eyes light on this bar of chocolate and there's this connection, something fires up in the brain and suddenly this desire for chocolate that wasn't present gets ignited. And, you know, marketing experts are, of course use this brilliantly so when you you know like in the supermarkets and things at the checkout this, everything's placed just so that it's going to attract your your child to say mommy i want that <laughs> and uh, just immediately there's a connection and remember, you've had absolutely no desire for anything before but just something happens and so there's this immediate suction towards towards uh something pleasant even when it's not helpful or not really wanted or also that that is something that we often do. That's a, so the Buddha actually said that, um, that a person who hasn't really reflected, practiced, or heard this heard this perspective doesn't know of any other way of getting away from an unpleasant experience except for look, to look for a pleasant one to drive it out. So this is when we're feeling vaguely upset and we just stick our hand in the biscuit jar or... I shared this in the last talk I gave here, I think, because it was a very, very, very recent experience um, of being on the email and actually finding finding an email that I had to deal with slightly stressful. And a few minutes earlier, I had seen a packet of crisps lying around and thought, actually, I don't want any crisps right now, and I'll do my email. And then before I knew it, I was sitting there Typing with one hand and the other hand in the bag of the, in the bag of crisps, and it was just like I'd found this stressful dealing with this response that I needed to make, and so my my whole system had reached out for some pleasant experience to fix it, to anaesthetise myself with. Yeah. So these are these are all ways that we kind of. Um, dissipate our energy and also keep ourselves hooked in a cycle of unsatisfactoriness because then there's the kind of feeling of you know i don't feel optimally comfortable in my body because i've eaten something that i knew i didn't want and then that remorse of oh i did that or uh, all the various ways that this thing just keeps us going So what do we what do we do with all that? Yeah. This is where the practice of awareness is so important because it gives us a chance to press the pause button on these habitual patterns and also to get to understand them a lot more. And we'll it will explore them more over the over the course of the next few days and more of more of these patterns. But we have the chance at least to to get some perspective on them, to notice them when they're arising, and to pause, to stop, to take a breath. Uh, And if we begin to familiarize ourselves with these patterns and to see them in operation, then they begin to lose their power over us. So the attitudes that we've been cultivating today, the attitudes of curiosity, of non-judgment and of allowing, this is all moving ourselves out of the terrain of reactivity and into the possibility of response, if you like, of choosing, choosing a skillful response, not being caught in habit. And you don't have to wait till you're a perfect being free from all these kind of, uh, you know, uh, maybe overly sticky relationships with the chocolate bar or whatever before you can do any of this. To just bring interest, curiosity, non-judgmentalness and interest in the, in the patterns of the heart and mind, a bit like the way that a a, a botanist would observe you know things in nature we don't have to take it all personally as being my personal defect we all have variations of all these patterns we just get interested oh this is this is how minds and bodies are wired up this is how it works if i put in a bit more of this intention or this this attitude what effect does it have if i follow this impulse what effect does it have the, today also we've been um, using a lot the, the perception of space to help us hold what's actually present and to hold, hold what's difficult also. You know, the more you have a sense of spaciousness in awareness, uh, the less overwhelming a particular piece of difficulty is. So there's the, the, the usual image that's used is of having a teaspoon of salt If you you dissolve a teaspoon of salt in a cup of water, the water will taste very salty, but if you dissolve a teaspoon of salt in a lake, uh, it's barely noticeable. That's the same with uh, difficult mind states, difficult experiences. We have a sense that actually awareness is containing this and dot, 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 becomes uh, much less likely to knock us off our perch or off our post, if you like. And the same for the sense of rootedness into the earth, the connection with the earth. So the Buddha statue behind me is in this classic earth-touching gesture, which is what the the Buddha did when the forces of of, um, doubt or temptation came to argue with him. He would recognize and say, I know, I know, I know what this is. And to touch the earth, to actually call on the earth to uh, witness his right to sit there, to retain his seat, to stay awake in the face of uh, the different uh, temptations and challenges that pass through even the mind of a Buddha. So we can free ourselves, begin to free ourselves, and it's a, you know, it's a lifetime's work, but freeing ourselves from our habitual ways of reacting to things. And we can also um, free ourselves or um, expand our free ourselves from or expand our habitual ways of seeing things. So, one of the the blessings of retreat is that we have time to the time to uh, see things, perceive things, explore things afresh. I think. Uh, you know thinking of various friends and family that I live with or spend lots of time with who manifestly doing things in a really counterproductive manner and aware that they're doing things in a counterproductive manner but have that sense of I'm, I'm too busy too busy to think about how I might do this differently yeah and we've probably all been there in some circumstances and yet so these kinds of times of retreat are really creating space to watch uh, the patterns of the heart and mind. Uh, give us a give us a chance to actually see things in a different way. So one of the a beautiful image somebody brought today was of a um, painter, a painter who you know, a good painter looks directly at something and paints what they see. They don't say, (coughs) oh, I'm I'm going to paint that vase of flowers, and a vase of flowers looks like that, so I'll paint it like that. You You paint what you see, not your idea of what a vase of flowers looks like. So I've got this a pair of slippers that has a, on one side a red apple and on one side a white apple. And one of the reasons I chose that pair of slippers, it reminds me of a story from Tara Brack where she she talks about a child who was asked, a primary school child who was asked by her teacher to draw an apple. And she drew this apple and it was white. And uh, the teacher said, you need to you need to colour in your apple. You know, why, why what's... And she said, and had this whole discussion with the girl, well, what colour is an apple? And the girl insisted, an apple is white. And, thought, and the teacher said, no, they're red or they're green. And then it eventually emerged, the girl said, if you cut the apple open, the apple is white. You know? But we sort of have this assumption that apples are red, red or green, don't we? We sort of get, we get our minds and our perception get habituated to viewing the world in a certain way and we lose a lot of our creativity and then our, our reactions also come from our habitual, or our reactions to our habitual ways of seeing the world. So this is another space where uh, there's a possibility for a different response. If not, not only that we're just seeing the same thing and that we respond to it in a different way, but actually we might actually start to see things differently. And that evokes a different response. So I also wanted to share uh, a bit of reading from... Um, a book by uh, someone called Jacques Luceron, who was a French resistance hero at the age of 17 or so. But he, uh, he was born and brought up in Paris. And he I don't know what happened, but when he was a young boy, he was involved in an accident where he became blind. And he uh, eventually wrote this autobiography called uh, And Then There Was Light, about his experience, I think his whole experience, but particularly the, the bits that I want to read from was where he's talking about his experience of after becoming blind as a young boy. And this is actually from um, an anthology by um, Christine Feldman and Jack Cornfield. But anyway, this is Jacques Luc Simon. So he says it was a great surprise to find myself blind and being blind was not at all as i imagined it nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it they told me that to be blind meant not to see yet how was i to believe them when i saw not at once i admit not in the early days after my immediately after my operation for at that time i still wanted to use my eyes I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident and there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realised that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. This was much more than a simple discovery, it was a revelation. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a, f- it was a fact, Light was there. And he he goes on a lot to talk about his experience of of light inside himself and of uh, his sense of seeing. But I, what I want to read is a little uh, a bit of what he has to say about sound and about touch. This is really relate I feel to our meditation practice. So he says, "How could I have lived all that time without realizing?" that everything in the world has a voice and speaks not just the things that are supposed to speak but the others like the gate the walls of the houses the shade of trees the sand and the silence still even before my accident i loved sound but now it seems clear to me that i didn't listen to it after i went blind i can never make a motion without starting an avalanche of noise If I went to my room at night, the room where I used to hear nothing, the small plaster statue on the mantelpiece made a fraction of a turn. I heard its friction in the air, as light a sound as the sound of a waving hand. Whenever I took a step, the floor cried or sang. I could hear it making both these sounds, and its song was passed along from one board to the next, all the way to the window, to give me the measure of the room. It was as though the sounds of earlier days were only half real, too far away from me and heard through a fog. Perhaps my eyes used to make the fog, but at all events my accident had thrown my head against the humming heart of things and the heart never stopped beating. You always think of sounds beginning and ending abruptly, but now I realized that nothing could be more false. Now my ears heard the sounds almost before they were there, Touching me with the tips of their fingers and directing me toward them. Often I seemed to hear people speak before they began talking. Sounds had the same individuality as light. They were neither inside nor outside, they were passing through me. They gave me my bearings in space and put me in touch with things. It was not like signals that they functioned, but like replies. and then a little bit that he says about touch when I had eyes my fingers used to be stiff half dead at the ends of my hands good only for picking up things but now each one of them started out on its own they explored things separately changed levels and independently of other made themselves heavy or light movement of the fingers was terribly important yet there was something still more important than movement and that was pressure If I put my hand on the table without pressing it, I knew the table was there, but knew nothing about it. To find out, my fingers had to bear down, and the amazing thing is that the pressure was answered by the table at once. Being blind, I thought I should have to go out and meet things, but I found that they came to meet me instead. I've never had to go more than halfway, and the universe became the accomplice of all my wishes. Touching the tomatoes in the garden and really touching them, touching the walls of the house, the materials of the curtains and a clod of earth, is surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But it's more than seeing them. It's tuning in on them and allowing the current they hold to connect with one's own, like electricity. To put it differently, this means an end of living in front of things and a beginning of living with them. Never mind if the word sounds if the word sounds shocking, for this is love. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, so this embodied experience and uh, This contact, this constant impingement of contact with the world through these sense doors. It can be a place of uh, habitual, if you like, blindness and reactivity, or it can be a place where we really wake up to both the wonder of life and our freedom to respond in different ways. The present moment is where both where suffering arises and the only place where it subsides <coughs> so I went to uh, last weekend I was teaching a day in a quaker really beautiful Quaker meeting house in wales it 's the oldest Quaker meeting house in Wales, I think, and there was a, a gentleman who came on the day retreat who usually goes to the Quaker meetings there. And he said that many people who come there, or people, especially Quakers who come there, say, this is a very thin place. And some people were saying, well, what do, you, what do you mean by a thin place? And he said it's the... Uh, the, the well, actually, I, I'm, sa- I'm saying this now, but what he was saying is, to me, it's like the membrane between this world of unsatisfactoriness and suffering... And the world of peace is very, very thin. And I think this is what we're doing in our meditation practice, is we're learning to make this membrane thinner and thinner. And it's a a place that can can be perforated at any time. And we often in our practice, I think, we we wait for this kind of big bang experience or this sense of one day in the distant future or in many possible possibly in many lifetimes or in my distant dreams or in other people. For other people, this kind of freedom that the teachings point to is possible. And in doing that we overlook the many little freedoms that arise moment to moment in our in our life or that are there. You know? So notice the moments of the subsiding of a difficulty that was there before. Notice the moments of peace and contentment. Notice the moments of the dropping away of ill will or annoyance or despair. That we we learn to, um, because we're so, you know, we're wired up, we know all this. About negativity bias and things, we we are programmed to notice what's wrong. We notice all the things in our practice where we're being unenlightened, where it's not working, blah blah blah. blah. And we we can overlook those little glimpses of peace and freedom that are available if we're looking in the right place. If we learn to um, pause and open up the gap between the stimulus and response. So, Ajahn Sumedho, who was my, my first teacher, he, he really loved to quote a piece from the, the Buddhist suttas where the Buddha said, There is an, there is an unborn, an uncreated, an unoriginated, an un, unformed, i.e., a, a place or a, a circumstance that is beyond the unsatisfactoriness of uh, constantly changing conditions. And because there is this place of peace and freedom, then uh, escape from the world of the unsatisfactory is possible. And I'm conflating two things that he used to love to quote, because the other is that he would always he'd begin every single teaching, Dharma talk that he gave, uh, quoting this piece that said that the doors to the deathless are open. If you, if you listen with faith... Uh, you can walk through so I really wish you to um, attend to this and uh, keep exploring and let your practice keep uh, tuning you to that place where the, the that membrane is very thin let your, not just when you go to a quaker meeting house or a meditation centre or a beautiful place but in every moment of our life can we live in a thin place and enjoy the ride so I've said enough I think for this evening let's just sit for a moment quietly and let the words fade back into silence